So many people choose familiarity over uncertainty, regardless of where it leads. Even if it's like, fuck, I know I'm going to be miserable with this, but I at least know that that'll happen. This other path is terrifying because I do not know what is down this path. And that fear of that uncertainty is too great relative to, yeah, but if I just go left, I at least know what's going to happen. Welcome to episode 15 of the Idea Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So if you were to ask my high school self about career aspirations looking ahead, I'd have probably told you that I was most interested in pursuing something in the finance and business realm. Because at the time, I was naturally drawn to those subjects, and the whole space of investing I found very fascinating. I ultimately did go down that route. I ended up studying economics in college and then went on to start my career in wealth management and investment banking. But what I had also come to realize throughout my late teens and early 20s is that I was deeply fascinated by the human mind. Ever since taking a psych course in my junior year of high school, the study of psychology continued to be something that intrigued my curiosities. And at one point in college, I seriously considered pursuing a major in psychology. The depth of the human mind and its ability to create, evolve, and adapt to its environment, I had thought, and I continue to think, that it is the most mysterious and miraculous products of this world. These days, we are obsessed with the novelty and fascinations around artificial intelligence. And it's for good reason. We're only in the early innings as it relates to the societal and economic impacts that AI will have on humanity. But time and time again, I keep coming back to the importance of studying human nature. Some of you guys will know that for the last few months, I have been engaged in a marketing learning sprint. And I recently read the foundational book Ogilvy on Advertising, which was written by David Ogilvy, who is recognized as the father of advertising. In that book, Ogilvy cites a quote from a fellow advertiser, William Birnbach, and I really enjoyed this quote from Birnbach. He says, quote, human nature hasn't changed for a million years. It won't even change in the next million years. Only the superficial things have changed. It is fashionable to talk about the changing man. But a communicator must be concerned with the unchanging man. What compulsions drive him? What instincts dominate his every action? Even though his language too often camouflages what really motivates him. End quote. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Corey Wilkes. Corey is a licensed clinical psychologist and executive coach who helps creators and communities in the world to clarify what matters, to overcome limiting beliefs, and to reach their potential in life and business. Corey is also the author of the Creator Alchemy newsletter, where he provides weekly deep dives into psychology, online business, and content creation. I continue to believe that time spent studying human nature and understanding one's own mind is one of the surest paths to development and ultimately success. With all that said, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Corey Wilkes. So, Corey, uh, extremely excited to have this conversation. Um, and the reason being is when I first named my podcast, The Idea Exchange, the intent behind it was to keep it open-ended because 
my curiosities are quite diverse. And while I'm interested in things like investing or the creator economy or entrepreneurship, I didn't want to bottleneck myself into um, only one or two topics. And you are a psychologist. You are kind of branded as the psychologist for creators. Um, and I know your background is, is quite deep in the space. I haven't actually had a conversation with a psychologist before, um, but am incredibly I just love the, the topic matter. So I'm super excited to get to get kind of this conversation kicked off. Maybe as a, a starting point, would love to hear a little bit about your early decisions to even pursue a career in the psychology space. Um, I know it's been a bit of a winding path for you, but would love to start with a little bit of background. Sure. Well, so one, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so my background was I, I, I'm traditionally trained as a licensed clinical psychologist, right? And then I switched to executive coaching, coaching, you know, founders, startup, you know, entrepreneurs, bootstrapped people, content creators, all that other stuff, which is what I do now. So initially, all I was going through was to do therapy, right? That is my previous career is doing therapy. I actually hated psychology growing up. I thought it was complete bullshit. Hmm. Um, I had uh, some bumps in the road growing up and I was in therapy as a kid and it was wholly ineffective. Um, I, so I just, I thought it was all bullshit. I'm like, you, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Like this, this, I am smarter than you, right? I was an arrogant prick as a kid. Um, but trauma will, will do that to you sometimes. So, um, so I thought it was bullshit. I took a, cause I, I hated therapy. In high school, I took like an AP psychology class taught by somebody who taught directly out of an intro textbook. They didn't actually know anything. Uh, so I was like, oh, it's bullshit. Got to college, took intro psych, a required class taught by a GA, a graduate assistant, um, who probably came in drunk half the time, or <laughs> just some other kind of checked out. Um, so I was like, Oh, this is bullshit. I literally slept in class and still got an A. So I was like, this is a bullshit topic. Um, cause I was originally studying like business management. I switched to like dietetics, which is food nutrition. I kind of bounced around, but I hated psychology. Hmm. And then I had, um, a, another required psychology class. It was either adult or child development, which is just like psychology across the lifespan. Like how does our, how do our minds change as we get older? And it was like, oh, you know, on the syllabus, it was like Dr. Hinton, you know, psychologist, you know, developmental psychologist. I was like, okay, this old white motherfucker is going to walk in. He's going to be so old, like chalk is just going to poof out of his mouth when he talks or something. And in walked this like 30s, like early 30s black dude from Memphis covered in tattoos. He didn't speak professorially. He talked like a real dude from Memphis. He didn't try to hide where he was from. Um, and I was like, oh, you have my attention. Like, I haven't seen people that look like you with your demeanor, with your passion, teaching psychology. And he, he walked in and just the, the way that he described psychology and how people are sort of like puzzles and psychology helps you empower them to, to find where the pieces fit, right? That really shifted my perspective on psychology and how applied psychology could be. And it wasn't just 
brain chemistry. It wasn't just some Freudian thing about your mom or whatever bullshit that is or dream interpretation. Like it was not, it was like, here's how you actually understand people. And if you understand people, you can largely understand the world. So that just really shifted everything for me. That day I walked to the bursar or whoever, the office and changed my major to psychology. Um, that was how impactful that was. Like I went mm. through from like my entire life thinking psychology was complete bullshit to at like 19 changing my major as a like set first semester sophomore or something to psychology and then got the bachelor's master's doctorate. Um, so that was how I got into it. So when people are skeptical about psychology, I'm like, I fully get it. I was skeptical for a long time, but since I've learned how powerful understanding psychology can be for any endeavor in life. Very interesting. The, the point, especially in terms of understanding the mind as perhaps the most powerful asset that one can, can attain, you know, nowadays the hot thing is artificial intelligence and the questions around artificial intelligence are, you know, what is the future capabilities? And there are so many very interesting, I think, intellectual discussions around the topic, but more and more when I think about where should I spend my time and resources, a lot of times it's coming back to understanding the human mind because there it's so deep. There is ancient texts um, trying to unpack the depths of the human mind. And I think even today there are open questions around like consciousness, um, around our emotions and our instincts for religion and creativity that to me are just fascinating. Um, and so I'm, I'm very looking forward to having more discussions around some of those topics. Um, in terms of your start in psychology, specifically as a therapist, um, was there a specific, specific type of therapy that you were doing? What were most of the, the patients that uh, you were consulting? What, what were kind of their situations? Yeah. So <clears throat> throughout grad school, right, you, you, you are trained as a generalist. So I had to do a bunch of different things, right? So I did child therapy, like child and family therapy. Um, I worked with, you know, people with autism. I did, you know, ADHD stuff. And then over time, um, cause I really liked working with like angry teenagers and people who are oppositional cause I was, mm -hmm. I am oppositional as a 35 year old, but I was definitely oppositional as a teenager. Um, so I, I got along really well with, with people like that. Um, and then as I continued to grad school, I did a lot of what's called integrated primary care. All that means is I worked alongside physicians like medical doctors. Um, so you would go see your medical doctor and you'd be like, Hey doc, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm shooting heroin, <laughs> something like that. So then they'd be like, Oh, you need to talk to Corey. Right. Cause like in the U S medical doctors have like five to 10 minutes with you. And then that's it. Hmm. Psychologists working in, in the medical field tend to have 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the specific location. So there's just, we have more time to work with you than the physicians do just because of how the medical model works. Um, and then over time working in medicine, <clears throat> I ended up specializing in addiction treatment specifically. So people hmm. who struggle with substance abuse, your substance use disorder issues, right? Substance abuse, addiction, interchangeable terms for, for most people. Um, I was working in rural Appalachia. So low, what's called low SES, low socioeconomic status. So people tend to be undereducated. They tend to be poorer. A lot of people are on Medicaid, things like that. Um, a lot of people have hard, like blue collar, like physically 
laborious jobs. So they get hurt pretty often. The whole opioid epidemic people, you know, they basically, they got hurt at work. They got overprescribed pain pills. They got hooked on the pain pills. Then the pain pills got taken away from them and then they got insane withdrawal. So then they started finding something else, which mm. typically ended up being heroin. And then eventually that tended to, to uh, evolve into meth use. Um, because the way it's been described to me is heroin withdrawal feel like, think of the worst you felt when you've had like the worst flu you've ever had. Waking up in heroin withdrawal is like that on steroids. And you wake up like that every day because every day you wake up in withdrawal. So as bad as you felt with the worst flu you've ever had, if somebody was like, Hey, if you take this, you will feel better in a couple minutes. Who wouldn't do that? All right. right. So that was the population largely I was working with for a number of years. Um, and then 2020 happened. I basically, uh, a long story as short as I can make it. Um, I was working, I was doing remote telehealth meaning I lived somewhere else and I zoom called people for therapy and a couple months into that new job, that new contract, I got an email. I was like, Hey Corey, you're great at your job, but you're fired because we're moving away from telehealth because you are exclusively remote. You're fired. Your paperwork's great. Patients love you. Coworkers love you. You're awesome, but fuck you. <laughs> so the way therapy licensure works, I'm licensed in West Virginia, the state of West Virginia. I was living in Kentucky at the time in order for me. And, and the way that works is I can be anywhere in the world, but you as my therapy patient have to be physically present in the state I'm licensed in during that call. Hmm. You don't have to be a resident of West Virginia, but you have to physically be there for that zoom call. It makes zero sense. I, when I got fired, I couldn't find a remote job based in West Virginia. I wasn't willing to move back because I had just moved. And in order for me to get licensed in Kentucky would have taken four to six months because the licensure board only meets every other month and they were already booked up the next two meetings. It's bullshit like that. So I was like, I spent the last 12 years of my life to practice therapy and I literally cannot practice therapy anymore. What the fuck do I do with my life? <laughs> so that's wow. when I was like, well, I have all these super applicable skills. I have to find how I can apply them somewhere else. And then that led into me getting into doing executive coaching, working with entrepreneurs, founders, um, content creators, things like that. Very cool. Before we delve into the kind of entrepreneur content creator, that whole space, because there's a lot of very exciting things happening there. Um, just double clicking on the experience therapy experience. Um, I'm specifically curious about, you think about specific types of occupations that have repeated exposure to a specific demographic, um, they kind of can peer into a different uh, side of, of people's issues that other areas in society just are not aware of. And specifically as it relates to like people with heroin addictions or other things like that, um, I'm wondering, were a lot of the people that you were interacting with were they coming to you out of their own volition with um, kind of a desire to change the habits or was a lot of it like, Hey, they were, they were forced upon you because of some program. And specifically, I'm wondering, I'm thinking a lot right now about kind of mind body issues and how, if you are 
your expectations can really set the reality to some extent of what's actually possible. And if you go into a discussion around therapy or any discussion of any type and you're not open to having your mind change and you don't want to improve, you're very unlikely to develop much headway. So I guess I'm just curious more about what your learnings were through that whole therapy experience. Yeah, that was a great question. So, you know, the, the main caveat is I was working specifically in rural Appalachia, which is a very different type of population, right? Like if I was working at like Beverly Hills at a private pay clinic, I would have been seeing a very different clientele, right? But based on my experiences where I worked, the, the place I worked at, it wasn't court mandated because court mandated treatment just doesn't fucking work. Like if you're being forced to do something, you're not going to engage. That's just, that, that, that's, that's, that's just reality. Like that is pr- like pr- there's proof everywhere. You can't mandate somebody to get better. It's just, it doesn't fucking work. The people we saw the, be- the way it basically worked is so with opioids specifically, there's a medication that you can take that, uh, I'm oversimplifying it, but it basically prevents withdrawal. Okay. So just like if you have a heart condition, you take a pill to, to help with your heart condition. If you have diabetes, you take medication to, to just manage your diabetes. This medication managed, uh, opium or opioid withdrawal. Okay. So they would come in to their talk to their physician to get that medication. The physician is like, okay, if you want this this medication, we have a program that you can join that in addition to the medication and because and, typically there are what's called comorbidities, meaning they just have other health issues in addition to that. Um, as part of giving you holistic care, we're also going to put you with a therapist so that you can work on the mental side, right? Because you don't just wake up one day and, and just, you, you know, you're banging heroin. Like there's typically a lot of shit that's happened in your life that has led up to that point, right? Mm. Most often, because people are like, oh, weed is a gateway drug. No. Trauma tends to be the common uh, theme with most people, not all, but most people with addiction, is they typically have a fairly significant trauma history that then just causes a cascade effect of, of or a domino effect of a lot of other things that can result in addiction. So then we would come in and help them with all of those things, right? Um, and doing simple things like identifying what are your triggers, right? Typically stress is a trigger to use. So then how do we identify these triggers? How do we find other ways of dealing with them? Right. Um, and that, you know, I use that a lot now, even though it isn't for addiction, because as humans, we all have triggers that, that elicit a certain response from us. So we need to be aware of like, how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with this? What causes stress? Right. I still use that today. Yep. Um, so that is one thing you have to really realize. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing is like, nobody wants to be addicted to shit. Like nobody wants to bang heroin. Nobody wants to, to eat smoke or shoot meth. Like people don't want to do that. It's just where they're at. One addiction rewires your brain. Like your, your brain is just, is just different. Um, you basically go into like survival mode and you'll do whatever mm. you, you need to, to survive. Right. Like it, it legitimately can, you know, can rewire the, the synapses and shit in your brain. Um, the other thing is a lot of these people are in situations where everybody around them is doing the same thing, right? For anybody, if you're skeptical about addiction, if you smoke, how many times have you tried to quit smoking and you just didn't, okay? You haven't lost your job, uh, because of cigarettes. You haven't lost your kids. You haven't put your health at risk. Like you haven't put yourself in dangerous situations to get cigarettes. 
So as, as hard as it is for people to quit smoking or vaping, they're, they're the same thing as far as like the nicotine shit. Um, as hard as that can be, heroin and meth and these other things are infinitely more difficult to stop. Okay, that's the, that's the best analogy I can make is as, as much trouble as either you personally, you've seen people have with trying to quit smoking, heroin and meth are so, so much harder to quit because it's just they're, they're your environment facilitates right like even if you're trying to quit smoking typically a lot of your of your friends smoke so when you all go to a restaurant you go to a bar every 30 minutes the whole group is going out to smoke well right. if you're trying to quit smoking you still have the same trigger of all of your friends are, are getting up to leave so you have a choice do i sit at this table alone and then I just daydream about smoking. Do I go outside with my friends and try to resist smoking when they're all doing it? That, that, that's a super common thing. It's, it's reason why so many people struggle with it, but also you're probably smoking to cope with stress. So like, and before you can try to quit smoking, you've got to identify all these triggers, all these environmental issues, all this other stuff, right? Like it's, there's a lot, you get a, a great insight into humanity when you study addiction. Um, there's this show, which if you haven't seen it, it would be worth checking out called, um, soft white underbelly. It's a YouTube channel, um, where this dude, he just interviews people that like most of society deems as unworthy. He'll, he'll interview people who were addicted to shit, pimps, prostitutes, all kinds of different people, you know, Aryan brotherhood, people like felons, all sorts of shit. And you get to see like, all. Oh, if I had lived like this person had, I would probably be where they're at today. And it's, mm -hmm. it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal show. If you haven't seen it, I I've seen a couple of episodes and I listened to the Joe Rogan experience where, where he was on. And even in watching a couple of those, I mean, it kind of speaks to your point, which is the problems are not just ones of, Hey, you need to ch change your habits. They are so deep, um, either psychologically or environmentally where it's like, you need to change, you know, five to 10 aspects of your life in a meaningful way in order for you to even have a chance at hitting success. And for an expectation that an individual on their own, or even with the help of a therapist would be able to, um, to actually come out unscathed is like so, so difficult. I remember watching one or two episodes where I think he had had on or interviewed um, specific individuals and tried to give them help, like financial help, emotional support, like give them all the resources that they could. And a lot of the times it was, it worked for a couple of months and then they found more security in going back to the hostile environment. And for any average person, it would have seemed like just wildly um, un unusual for somebody to want to go back to an environment that they know is is bad for their future, um, really opens your mind to the challenges of, uh, of human psychology for sure. Well, so as humans, we gravitate toward what is familiar, right? Like humans, we like being able to identify patterns and anticipate what's going to happen. Mm. <clears throat> this is why, you know, even with my work with now, a lot of times what you see is people on the whole tend, if they're at a fork in the road and you're like, okay, left leads to guaranteed misery, but you can anticipate it. Right leads to the, the, the potential of a better life, but it's full of uncertainty. It isn't guaranteed. So many people choose familiarity over uncertainty, regardless of where it leads. Even if it's like, fuck, I know I'm going to be miserable with this, but I at least know that that'll happen. This other path is terrifying because I do not know what is down this path. 
And that fear of that uncertainty is too great relative to, yeah, but if I just go left, I at least know what's going to happen. You see that in relationships all the time. Like people go back to like shitty relationships just because like, like, well, I can anticipate the, like the beats of the relationship. Like it's going to be good. It's going to be bad. It's going to be good. It's going to be bad. I can anticipate this because I'm familiar with this person versus risking the other option. Was that process of transitioning from working, I would say a more standard, like nine to five type of psychology job and doing what you're doing now, um, kind of in the creator space, was that, did that take any kind of identity reinvention for yourself specifically because as it relates to like fear and uncertainty, um, there's a quote from Naval where he says something like the more neatly that you fit into society, the less freedom you actually have. And it seems like there is always this trade-off between security and uncertainty and, and also, you know, future, future uncertainty and that propagates fear. So I'm curious in terms of your own experience and, uh, and how, how that's been for you. Yeah. So one, the biggest shift I made was just mentally shifting away from like a psychopathology model, like meaning seeing everybody is sick mentally, like hmm. depression or anxiety or addicted because the majority of society isn't that. Right. But when, when you're in this, you are in like this very, like this kind of microcosm of like the only people I see on a day-to-day -day basis, the reason they're coming to me is because they have problems. So it's really easy for me to have this skewed perception of, oh, well, this must be representative of how the rest of the world is. Hmm. Right. So making that shift from like a pathology model to like a wellness model and just assuming people are pretty healthy, but they do still need help to like reach your potential. That was probably the hardest shift for me initially. Um, but then the more you do it, that becomes your new baseline. Um, <clears throat> as far as me, so I, I talk a lot around like values work. My core value is freedom. Okay. The freedom to do certain things and the freedom from doing others. And every time I have an idea or an opportunity comes my way. I ask myself, does pursuing this get me one step closer to or one step further away from a life aligned with my core value of hmm. freedom? Whatever your core value is, is a bunch of exercises we go into as far as like how to clarify and like, you know, whatever, but that's mine. So for me, after I quit there, after I decided to leave the therapy world after getting fired, I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to try to go back to this. I got a, another therapy job offer from a different company. They're like, Hey, we will pay you more money than you were making. And it is remote. Um, but it'll be 40 plus hours a week. You got to jump through all this bureaucratic red tape. You got to do all these things our way. I was like, okay, despite the money, does this get me one step closer to or further away from a life aligned with my core value of freedom? Because for me, freedom is like the ability to wake up when I want to work on what I want, to share my ideas in my way, to not have to have a fucking boss, verify everything, whatever, to be able to wear pajama pants all day. Cause I refuse to ever wear khakis and a polo out, out <laughs> of requirement ever again. I burned half my shit. Cause after I it was like, I'm never gonna do this again. Um, I hate wearing khakis and a polo, but so I asked myself that and it was like, despite the money, this will actually get me further away because 40 hours I work for them is 40 hours. I'm not working for myself. So I'm willing to leave money on the table in the short term to set myself up for success over the long term. Okay. So for me, yes, entrepreneurship, there's a lot of uncertainty. 
sometimes it can be feast or famine. Sometimes you have really good months. Sometimes you've got really lean months. Like that's just this kind of part of entrepreneurship and why it isn't necessarily for everybody, right? Like I think it can be for many people, but you have to have a certain level of, of risk tolerance and uncertainty tolerance to, to, to really flourish in it. I think unless you have really, really good systems and a shit ton of capital to just throw at shit. Um, uh, and even that isn't guaranteed, right? We, we've all seen startups that had huge potential just, just go under, right? Um, so that to me, I'm like, there's a lot of uncertainty, but that the, the flip side of that uncertainty is freedom, right? Because if I wanted, like, I could go back to therapy. I won't. I would, I would do ghostwriting before I would ever go back to therapy. Um, I would be like a ghost or a copywriter. I would do that way before I'd ever go to therapy because um, I've learned those skills now and I can just do that. Um, so it, it is a lot of uncertainty. It, it is, you know, just you don't know what the path, you know, where the path leads necessarily, but there is a supreme degree of freedom in that uncertainty as well. And that for me as somebody who is oppositional, who hates being told what to do, who hates having a boss, who hates legacy institutions that are like, this is how we do it. It doesn't matter that it is broken and that it doesn't work. This is how we do it. For somebody like that, I, I would take this path all day. Let's, um, I, I love to double click on the whole fear discussion because you have um, what you term the, the four horsemen of fear and we hit on one of them, which is uncertainty. Um, what surprises me in reflecting even on my own experience is that, you know, fear kind of, um, it manifests itself in, in varying capacities. Um, and for, for example, like my background was I had graduated from Stanford in 2019 and I worked for a large investment bank and a lot of my peers who I, who I graduated with went along a similar path. And ultimately for myself, I decided that spending five, 10, 15 years in that same path was not for me. And I was curious about trying to live in a more free and fulfilling way. But what was interesting was seeing other people who realized that they weren't really manifesting the life that they wanted, but still kind of being held held hostage in like a social complacency um, in careers where they were getting paid very well, um, but they realized kind of subconsciously that they, they weren't taking the risks that they felt they should, and they kind of felt some sort of paralysis around that. I think that's a, a very common situation for many people in their, their 20s and early 30s. Um, and so this question of, of fear, dissecting it and trying to overcome it, I'm just curious to get your perspective on how you advise people um, that, that come to you with, uh, with questions around their own fears. Yeah, so for context, the, the four horsemen of fear for people who aren't familiar, <clears throat> these are the most common limiting beliefs that I consistently see hold entrepreneurs back, which are fear of failure, right? Everybody's familiar with that one of like, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not smart enough? What if this just doesn't work out? Um, and that typically stops us from even beginning, right? Because if I assume it's, it isn't going to work out or if I question whether it'll work out, I'm probably not even going to try to start it, right? Then there is fear of ridicule, which is what will my friends and family think, right? I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day and he was like, look, I come from a very uh, culturally traditional household where you're only allowed to be like a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer. Uh, entrepreneur isn't one of those options. So I have to like, he, he was like, I literally have to create a pitch deck 
to my family <laughs> to, to sell them on the fact that like, Hey, I'm going to go th do this thing over here. Right? Just so like the family who is all engineers and doctors and lawyers can be like, okay, fine. We, we you know, we approve of your, of your decision. Right. Um, and I hear that consistently from people who are like first generation, second generation, like people from other countries cause that's the super common. Right. Um, yep. so there's a fear of a fear of ridicule. And even if you're established, you know, one thing I hear from creators a lot is like, well, what if I talk about this over here? How will my audience respond? What if the algorithm, you know, cripples my rankings because this video isn't on topic, right? Fear yep. of uncertainty, like we talked about. And then fear of success, which trips up a lot of people and they're not even aware of it. Because you may be like, well, Corey, why would I be afraid to achieve the thing I claim to want? And the reality for success is, unless you have achieved major success, however you define it, Success represents crossing a threshold and becoming a different version of yourself, the successful version of you. And for a lot of people, they're afraid that success will change them for the worse. So maybe it means I will have peaked in life. Maybe I'll lose my ambition because I've been the underdog. And then once I succeed, I'm not the underdog anymore. Like this has been like my driving force and then I won't have that anymore. I'll lose my edge. Right. Mm. Or if I become, you know, niche famous, maybe people will hang on my every word and I'm afraid that that level of, of power and influence might corrupt me or that I wouldn't be able to handle that level of, of responsibility. And then other people deep down just believe they are unworthy of success. They don't deserve success, right? Most of the time when people come to me, it isn't even that they realize like, hey, Corey, I have fear of success. Can you help me with that? The things that most people are much more familiar with are the overt aspects, which are perfectionism, imposter syndrome, shiny object syndrome, procrastination. They're like, hey, I can identify these self-sabotaging behaviors I have because they're really easy for me to identify. And part of what we do when we work together is like, yes, but these are typically rooted in a fear. The reason you, are, you, you struggle with perfectionism, right? You don't actually struggle with perfectionism. Perfectionism allows you to avoid facing, let's say, fear of ridicule. Because what you do is you're like, oh, I'm a perfectionist. So I never hit publish. I have to make it perfect. I'm constantly tinkering um, and I keep pushing off my launch or I keep pushing back, you know, publishing this, this piece of content or whatever. Because I just, I have a really high bar for quality. No, you're bullshitting yourself. Everybody has a high bar for quality, right? The issue is your bar is unrealistically high that you're never going to meet reality, right? Cause perfection doesn't exist. Like nothing in life is perfect. So perfectionism is expecting yourself to attain the unattainable. Okay. That's how perfectionism trips up most people. Hmm. So understanding the, the root, like the function of perfectionism, it typically serves the function to help you avoid fear of ridicule. Because if you launch your thing, if you hit publish, now you risk people judging it. Now you risk it failing. Now you risk it becoming, you know, knocking out of the park and becoming super successful and then it changing, right? So there's something typically down the line that perfectionism or imposter syndrome or whatever else is actually just helping you avoid a fear of. So once you understand what that fear is, where it came from, how to deal with it, typically a lot of these self-sabotaging behaviors go away or they at least minimize enough to no longer be uh, keeping you from moving forward and taking action. And I'm curious, like when you work with other people in dissecting and understanding and ultimately overcoming their own fears. I mean, if you think about from a 
evolutionary psychology perspective, like some of these fears make a lot of sense, which is um, fear of like social ridicule, right? It's like if your tribe, the group of people around you are disapproving of what actions you're taking, then it very well may have been many, many thousands of years ago, a situation where if you continue to engage in those actions, you were going to get, you know, ostracized from, from that group. Um, and so I guess, I guess the question is in terms of working through the fears that most people have most of the the time is it a a management of like those fears will always persist and it's a way of of dealing with those fears or do you find that as you have conversations with individuals around fears that they should likely overcome that those end up quelling over over time or is it just dependent on the situation so a lot of it comes down to to giving it context right so you're right back in tribal days you know, being ostracized was a huge issue. Like you could just straight up die if you were ostracized from your, from your tribe because you can't survive on your own necessarily, right? Today, you can just find a different tribe, right? Like if, if one tribe kicks you out, you're like, well, I have the internet. I can find thousands of other tribes to be a part of, right? So the reality of that, uh, of modern society is, is that. But our brains are still like, yes, but I'm a caveman and I don't want to be ostracized. (laughs) So we have the same fear response, right? Fundamentally, we fear the unknown, right? Like the, so if people are super, uh, religious, they don't fear death the same way as somebody who is less so, right? Because people who are religious are like, I know in air quotes, right? Because religion is whatever. I know what happens when I die. I am certain. I go to heaven, I'm reincarnated, I'm this, that, whatever, right? I, I see my loved ones, whatever, whatever that is. I become one with the universe, whatever it is. If you're certain of that, then death isn't unknown. You, you know what happens. When people are afraid of the dark, you're not afraid of, of being alone in the dark. You're afraid of not being alone in the dark, <laughs> right? Because right? you're like, fuck, what else is in here with me, right? Like you're, yep. and, because you don't know what is there, right? You turn a light on, it's the same room. It's just now you know what is in the room. Fundamentally, we fear the unknown. So a lot of the the limiting belief work that I do revolves around how can we make the unknown known or at least knowable. So like one thing I do is what I call fear inoculation. So similar to how like like real inoculations or vaccines work, where you basically you introduce a little bit of the bad thing in a controlled environment so that you can build up a tolerance or an immunity in case you ever come across the real bad thing out in the world. Fear inoculation works similarly, where we say, okay, whatever your fear is, let's say you're afraid of ridicule. Well, let's assume shit hits the fan. Let's assume Mm -hmm. your worst fear comes true. Let's say you do something and then your quote unquote tribe ostracizes you. Okay, with that assumption in place, what are you going to do? What is your plan? How would you recover after that worst case scenario happens? And what every time people realize is, oh, I could handle it. If I got ostracized and this worst case scenario happened, here's what I would do. I would find another tribe. I would make amends with my tribe. I would do this. I would do that. Maybe that tribe isn't even worth caring about in the first place. Right. Um, Nipsey Hussle uh, rapper ha- has a quote that basically says, you will never be criticized by somebody who is doing more than you. You will only ever be criticized by somebody who is doing less than you. Hmm. Right. So the people who are going to ridicule you, the people who are going to try to tear you down, they're probably not in your corner. They're probably not in your tribe to begin with. 
right? So maybe it's like these opinions aren't even worth caring about in the first place. That may be one of the conclusions you draw, okay? And then that can free you to just do things that you feel are more aligned with how you want to show up in the world, right? But even if this tribe you really like kicks you out, okay, I'll find another tribe. I'll, I'll attract another tribe, right? I'll do something else. So then once you have this plan in place, this fear of ridicule, it may still be in the back of your mind, but it isn't in front of you stopping you from moving forward, right? So it isn't about making the fear fully go away necessarily so much as making it manageable so that you can move forward. Yeah, it's a good point. It's, and it's interesting to reflect on my own experience in that context because I'm currently in the suburbs of, of Chicago. A lot of the types of people that have my interests, um, whether it be in, in technology or investing uh, or the creator economy, it's, it's not that easy to find um, a high density of people that have the same passions. Um, but now with the unlocking of the internet and the ability to tap into digital communities, like your, your ability to, to find a tribe that has a lot of overlapping values is, is has never been easier and i feel like maybe one of the important things in trying to help other people who have these very deep fears is to expose them that there are possibilities um outside of what they may be aware of because if you're not actively online if your whole entire like social group is the people in your hometown and the people that you went to high school with, then it very well might be the case that that fear is a rational fear where you can't actually kind of break out of your mold. Um, I'm curious, like for yourself with engaging in the creator economy and be posting on X and all that stuff, have you found that to be, to be the case in your experience? It was just like attracting people and, and finding the right people. Yeah, the the ability to um, kind of create a tribe that shares the same types of values in order to, I guess, like manifest the, the career that you've pursued. Yeah, so <clears throat> when I decided to, you know, leave therapy and start writing, because that was my, my first thing is like, I, I love writing. So doing the whole entrepreneur, creator, writer thing, um, I, I got a lot of benefit out of Twitter X. Um, because it allowed me to have dialogues with people who had inspired me for years, right? Mm. Um, and then as I started writing, it was easier for me to like share some of my content. So then people would, would see that and be like, oh, I like how you think about the world. Let's, let's talk more, right? Or I like how you interact with me in the comments. Let's, you know, take this to the DMs and, and you know, or set up a Zoom call or something like that. Um, that was really helpful. And then you get to know people, right? Because like, when I became an entrepreneur, I didn't have any business background. Like I, I just Googled and read and YouTubed a bunch of shit around like, how do I spin up a website? How do I create an LLC? Like, when do I hire a CPA? Like hmm. copywriting, how does this work? Right. I just self-taught the majority of that stuff. Um, and then I got to meet people and just knowing that other people out there exist on this path and that they've succeeded goes a long way on the days you, you question if you can make it right on the days that you question if, if you, if you have it in you to do, or if it's, if it's even viable, or is it just for these two or three people who are the outliers? Mm. It's like, no, I have dozens or hundreds of people right now that I can hit up on Twitter or text or just people I know that prove the model. And that has been invaluable, right? Like one, like sometimes we'll collaborate, but just having a friend, to process things and to talk to and just to know real people like that exist 
Um, and you know, instead of just like the fake gurus hawking some bullshit course on how to be an entrepreneur, um, knowing real people like that exist is instrumental in staying on this path. Even on that subject, when people come to you, aspiring creators that maybe want to do something independent and they do have like a comfortable job, maybe that they don't like uh, hate to a, a degree where it's like they need to quit now. Um, how do you walk them through that transition process? Because on the one hand, there's an instinct to say like, hey, you should you should pursue your freedoms and, and do what fulfills you. On the other hand, you do have to still account for the very real um, financial, uh, relational effects that a decision, uh, like leaving your job could, could have. Um, I curious how, how you typically navigate those, those discussions. So the, the simplest way is to just think about your runway, right? For, for most people, like if, if you, <laughs> if you have the luxury of planning when you leave your job, right, you didn't just get fired. Yeah. Um, one way to look at it is runway. How much runway do you need? to take three months off or six months off or three years off, right? If you just assume you make zero money for the foreseeable future, how many months can you do that for that you would be comfortable doing? Right. Right. Um, the other thing is, and, and most people on like the, the solopreneur or bootstrap, whatever path will tell you, you can live off of less than, than you think. Right. One of the biggest issues I've seen with like, software engineers is they have such a skewed idea of what the average person makes, right? One guy I worked with, he was like, look, man, I really, I hate this job. I really want to take this job over here, but I don't think I'd be able to afford living on that salary. I'm like, oh, okay, w what would that be? He's like, well, I would make $50,000 less. I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. He's like, yeah, I would only be making $200,000. <laughs> I was like, shut the fuck up. Like, I was like, your pay cut is, is more than a lot of people make total, right? If you, if, if you include like teachers and other people, right? Right. I was like, but as we dug into it, he was like, well, my wife also works in a similar field. She makes a similar amount of money. We're, we're completely fine. And also for me to work for this other company, I would start at 200, but within three months, I'd be right back to 250. And then within like nine months, I'd be up to 300 and I'd have equity and all this shit. I'm like, it's just fear. Like, dudes, you could live off of 50K, but you got 200 and she's got another. You all are bringing home 500K a year <laughs> and have been for a decade or two decades. Right. You're fucking fine. But your perception of what the average person makes and your perception of what it takes to live off of is insane. Right. So doing some reality testing of like, okay, what are my actual expenses, like cost of living on a month to month basis? based off of how much I currently am bringing home, based off of how much I have in savings or you know whatever, can I get to a point of six months of, of runway? Right. right. Or can I get to a point of three years or something like that? Um, that is one really simple way. Um, another thing that you can combine with that is doing something as a quote unquote side hustle to build that up. And then once your side hustle is bringing in the same amount of money or enough money to comfortably cover your expense expenses, then you can either quit your job or you can dial down your hours of that job to then put more hours into the side thing. 
right? And then you slowly go that, that route, right? Like there are, it isn't a mutually exclusive, like all or nothing thing. Like there, there are, there are ways for you to like turn the dial up and down if that makes it more comfortable for you. But I, I mean, I, I did the whole burn the boats thing of, of, of like, I got fired. Fuck them. I'm never going back. I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to build the plane in the air, right? Like I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm in it. I'm here. I got to figure the fuck out. <laughs> it isn't yep. for everybody, but it was for me. Well, I mean, even the example that you used in terms of people making 200K plus per year and them feeling like they're going to need to take a substantial pay cut, it really speaks to the degree to which there are other costs other other than purely financial, which is if your whole social circle is other software engineers that are making you know a killing and you decide to do something independent, like you are going to get looked at in a different way. And so it kind of is like a forcing functions for some internal reckoning where it's like, are the people that you're surrounding yourself with ultimately the people that, that you should in order to aspire to live out the, the kind of life that's aligned with your values? You know? And I think that's a very difficult thing to reconstruct. And, and at the end of the day, if you're in a more traditional field or come from a more traditional family, whatever, accepting the reality that sometimes people just aren't going to get it. <clears throat> it's hard, but that's also just a real, like you can't make people get it right. Which is again, why finding people who do get it makes it significantly more viable of a path for you because mm -hmm. one, you're connecting with these other people. But then what you find sometimes when you talk to other people, like, yeah, my family doesn't know what the fuck I do. Or like, yeah, all my, my former Wall Street friends are all talking about how much money they pulled in this year, or their bonus, but they've all got fucking ulcers and heart issues from stress and they're on their third marriage and it's in shambles because of, uh, and it's just like, that's why I left Wall Street was because I didn't want that life, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like taking that into, into, into account and finding people who get it, again, just goes, it, it cannot be overstated the impact that can have when it comes to actually making a big career move let's say somebody that has like internally they've decided i i have enough runway so that i am psychologically like good um and can do this for a few months there's there's a an interesting experience that happens when you leave a full-time job that is like nine to five you have a lot of structure somebody's telling you what to do um you have a very like clear order uh, around like what your day is going to look like. And then you do something like you quit your job and it's just like, it's hard to find some footholds as to like where to make progress. Um, so I'm curious, like what your perspective is on kind of goal setting, um, or how one should go about managing their days, um, and, and like tracking progress, especially because this is, this is topical. We're, speaking at kind of the end of, of January and a lot of people at the beginning of the year probably sets like new year's resolutions for themselves. And now is, is kind of the time where a lot of that, that falls off. Um, so I'm curious your overarching perspective on how people th should think about setting and aspiring towards their goals. Yeah. So one, I am not a particularly structured person. Again, I am oppositional. Um, the way I think, and and because and I've tried a lot of the goal setting frameworks, and I just feel like I'm micromanaging myself, and then I'm like pissed off at myself for micromanaging me, even though it's me doing it. Um, <laughs> so so I I'm not the best person to ask for all of that. The way I approach it is, what is my priority? Then what actions align with that priority? What actions support that priority? That is much simpler for me. Um, 
to, to just manage, right? Of like, my priority is this, cool. What do I need to do today that moves me closer to that, right? If you need more structure than that, the thing that I will use sometimes is what I call a needle movers list, which are, if I got nothing else accomplished today, what are the one to three highest leverage things that as long as I got these accomplished today would meaningfully move the needle forward, right? And I literally like, you'll see, um, I mean, my desk is a fucking mess, but like I keep like post-it notes on my desk and because you, you can't fit much on a post-it note. So I will put like, these are my needle movers for today hmm. on a post-it note. And then it's like, th this is what I'm doing. And some days it's only one, some days it may be three. And then once I finish it, I crumple it up, I throw it away, a little bit of satisfaction there, and that's it, right? Um, if you need, and, and you can do needle movers for the day or for the week, right? Like if you have like a longer term project, maybe it's like this week, I need to get this one thing fully finished, for example, right? That can, that can be a way to do it. I'm not an optimization guy. I'm just, I'm not. Like you will rarely ever hear me talk about productivity or optimization. These just aren't words that I aspire to embody. Um, I am much more about alignment and priority um, rather than the, the other more popular, you know, terms around hustling and, and, and organization. That's just not how I personally approach it. But like, so but before this episode, right? Like you and I, we were, before you hit record, we were talking about like, one, like my priority is, is uh, writing a book this year and, and attempting a traditional book publishing deal, right? Yep. So the, the things that support that priority are, growing my newsletter list um, because I can leverage that into the book deal, right? So it's like, okay, what can I do today that aligns with that priority? What can I do today to build the newsletter list? Because then that serves the priority of, of attempting the book deal, right? Um, what am I doing to improve my writing that aligns with that, right? If your priority, for example, is, is to improve your health, that isn't a smart goal, right? Like S-M-A-R-T, like smart goals, like, oh, it's got to be more specific than that where you can't just say get healthy or some shit. I get that. But for me personally, if I say my priority is to get healthier this year as defined by my knees hurting less, less, you know, a lower number on the scale, a bigger bench press, whatever that is, then it's like, okay, what can I do today that aligns with that priority? Well, I really want some fucking pizza like every day this week. Okay, well, does that align with it? Am I willing to go through a nutrition training program where I'm counting my macros? Or is it just easier for me to be like, I'm just not going to have pizza today? <laughs> right? Yep. So like, does this align with my, like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like a, a couch potato today. I don't want to go walk. I don't want to go to the gym. Does that align with your priority of improving your health this year? Well, no, it doesn't. Okay, well, then get your ass up. Right. Like that is much, much easier for me personally to commit to than let me write out my whole day. Let me set all these time blocks in my calendar. Like I walk here, I wake up here, I drink coffee and I send my emails. And I just, I, that just is, is overwhelming for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you there. It's, uh, it's interesting because that kind of, 
productivity um, content is like very hot on, on X and other social media platforms. And while I have a degree of respect for the kind of technologies that they're able to develop, Notion databases, automations, all that cool stuff, um, there is a, a point where there's diminishing marginal returns in, in my own experience. Um, in terms of achieving goals as well, the other thing that I sometimes reflect on is a lot of it has to do with like identity formation to some extent, right? Where I think it's kind of what you were speaking to earlier before, where it's like, I'm not the type of person that is successful. And if you believe that deep down, you're not going to do the types of things that successful people do. And what I'm seeing, interestingly, whether it's from families or corporations, groups of people as well, there are cultures that will emerge that manifest a specific type of identity. And if that identity is strong, then all the people that are in that culture will exhibit the types of behaviors um, that that culture stands for. And so it seems like a lot of times people try and set goals, but their aspirations or their identity needs to change in order for them to achieve that goal. And that seems like a very key piece of the puzzle as well. Yes. But that is a double-edged sword. So I'll talk about creators specifically. <clears throat> a lot of creators really struggle to actually make money because a lot of creators are trying to be influencers, right? And, and some influencers do really well. But the issue is there is a difference between seeing yourself as, quote-unquote, just a creator versus seeing yourself as an entrepreneur who creates content, the most successful creators are entrepreneurs who create content. And what I mean by that is they create content for a specific monetizable goal in the future of some, of some sort, whether it is this raises awareness, which then gets this, this tweet or whatever the hell is called now, the Zeet, some shit, this post, <laughs> yeah. whatever the, we don't have a term yet. This post is going to, you know, hopefully it will get a lot of engagement. And then under that, I will have a CTA to subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe to my newsletter, you then get put through this onboarding sequence that is going to sell you something or pitch you something multiple times. Right. Mm. But then also as you're seeing my, then you get to my regular newsletter list and then sponsors, uh, buy ad slots for this. So the more, uh, subscribers I have, the more I can charge for ad slots. So this one post, fits into a larger ecosystem that I'm creating to make money down the road, right? Yep. Versus the creator who's like, I spent three hours making this video and there's no CTA, there's no nothing, it's just here, look at all those likes I got. Yes, but you made no money, you yep. had no CTA, You it, it doesn't fit anywhere, right? Well, but I'm just, I'm really optimizing for YouTube ad revenue. Okay, cool. Well, what do you do when they slash their budget or, or your, your, your percentage? Well, now right. you don't, you're not making money. What if you get blacklisted? What if it, something gets you know, taken down, right? Or what if you're doing an AI faceless YouTube channel and then YouTube is like, you're reusing a bunch of content, so we're going to demonetize it. Well, now you're fucked, right? Versus if it's like, how does this piece of content alone provide a lot of value to my ideal audience, but also selfishly, how does it fit into a larger financially viable ecosystem? Mm. Those are the creators who are the most successful, both in the short term and long term, but especially long term. 
Yeah, I mean, two reflections on that point. One is like it speaks to the importance of diversification to some extent, right? Which is if you have a sole source of income and that is dependent on external factors that you cannot control, um, then you better be like very careful and very prudent about diversifying. I mean, I oftentimes think about professional athletes, um, specifically ones that are in their, let's say, late teens, early 20s that are superstars. And it's like you think about one career ending injury and their entire future, um, can, can materially change. Um, and, and that to me is like very frightening and people do that all the time in their daily lives as well. Um, and so that's, that's one point that comes to mind. And the other is that I do think there is maybe like a dark side of people pursuing the creator economy, which is that they're delusional to some extent, um, of like, Hey, they just want an excuse not to, uphold the responsibilities that they know they should be taking on. And you see this a lot. I used to play a lot of Starcraft two in my, uh, my high school days. And you would see people be like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to quit my job and pursue Starcraft two full time. And there's not really a viable path for their, their success. It's not obvious that they're on the way to become a professional gamer. Um, and I think that a lot of people do that in the creator economy as well. And it's easy for other people to kind of celebrate, Hey, yeah, go do your own thing. When the reality simply might be that they are, uh, they're running away from responsibilities that they should really be focused on. Yeah. And, and cause again, like, you know, I identify as a creator, so I'm going to do what I think creators do. Right. Well, I see all these other creators just riding and they're magically making money. And it's like, I'll use uh, Derek Sivers as an example, cause he's got a lot of great writing and people love his writing. The issue is a lot of people aspire to write like he does. Meaning he just writes about whatever he wants to write about. He, he has zero real motivation to try to monetize the majority of his writing, right? He's just writing for himself, which right. gives it a certain degree of authenticity and candor that is exceedingly rare, okay? So then sometimes people will read that like, oh, I just want to be, I want to write like him. And then they try to, and one, it's like, your shit isn't good. It isn't interesting. You're just doing like a dear diary in a way that isn't, it's just not good. Like you just haven't put in the reps to be a good writer yet. But the other thing is Derek Sivers doesn't need to make money. Like he made a shit ton of money before. Right. And then now he's like, I never have to work for money again. I'm going to do whatever I want. People don't understand that point. I was talking to a friend the other day. And he writes about uh, a really like niche esoteric topic and he does photography and he like lives out in the middle of the woods in like a, like a, like a bougie cabin kind of deal, like homesteading sort of stuff. And it's great. His writing is, is, is very much like I'm writing for me on this niche topic. And then other people who really get it, really like it. He does the lifestyle pictures with like what he does. And it's phenomenal. We were at dinner and I was talking, he was like, Okay, but what did you do before? Because it doesn't look like you're monetizing anything. He's like, oh, I had a, you know, I was unicorn exit. I'm like, motherfucker. Like, that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the shit people don't talk about. Like, yeah. that's, that's a very, but, but, it, but a lot of people enter the creator economy. They're like, oh, I'm going to do it like these guys. It's like, no, no, no. Those guys are sitting on tens and tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. They don't care how many subscribers they have. They don't have a course. They don't do consulting. They don't need to. They're just writing to write. And that's beautiful. But if you don't have millions of dollars to just sit on, you got to come up with a different way to pay the bills. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, it really speaks to 
you got to understand the people that you look up to, the game that they're playing and what they're optimizing for. Because, I mean, to your point, I think a lot of wealthy individuals, what they lacked, well, they invested their entire careers in acquiring a lot of money. But what they didn't get was the social status in the process of that. And so some of them are willing to burn like millions of dollars um, to promote their social media content in order to gain that status. But they're not looking for a financial return on that. And I think that's what a lot of people should pay more attention to in terms of who they aspire to emulate and, and, uh, and become. Well, and that's another reason why if you get to know people, you realize just how much goes on in the background, like offline. That, that, cause a lot of people are like, oh, I just, I see what they're doing online. So I'm just going to yep. copy that. Well, one, you're going to be a cheap knockoff to begin with, but also you don't understand how much goes on behind the scenes that is fueling this growth or this or that, or this success. Like that's really another reason why. And like, it isn't that people are being dishonest so much as uh, some are. But others are just like, I just don't talk about the back end shit because that isn't part of what I share online. Yep. But if you talk to me, I'm more than happy to share it. But I'm not trying to build a brand around building my business. A hundred percent. And maybe that's that's the, the difficulty of social media is that there is a, a huge level of asymmetry in terms of what people are willing to share and what they're willing to you know, keep private. And if you're just somebody scrolling through X and, and, uh, and all of the posts that you see are you know, how I made a million dollars in, in 90 days types of posts, um, it can make you, it's very easy to become delusional about what it takes to achieve success. Um, so it's, it's something I think everybody has to be very careful about. Um, especially because this whole thing of mimetic desire and the social environment around which you you are um, has a huge impact on your thought process. Um, and even for myself, so I was living in the city for the first couple of years, downtown Chicago, um, and in moving to the suburbs, I could see like a shift in my own desires and interests. And I think the same thing happens in whatever career path that you uh, you choose to be in, and it happens even maybe more so on online, which is the type of Twitter community that you're a part of, or whatever ever digital learning communities that you choose to engage in. Like those things rub off on you, and you have to be like very mindful of the fact that that kind of process is happening, um, because you can mistake your own desires for other people's desires that were kind of imparted upon you. 100%. And again, that's why also having like a diverse group, like the group within the group, right? Because like, so I moved to Austin, right? Like I moved here specifically because there's so many other creators. Mm. Um, so I guess like we're all in the creator space, but everybody's also doing something very different, right? So it's really interesting to to get different perspectives. So that way you're like, okay, I'm not just chasing what this one group is doing or what these three people are doing, because I'm seeing so many people doing so many different things that allows me to be like, well, I like this thing he's doing, but I don't like this thing that she's doing, right? What do I actually want to, to be doing for the foreseeable future? And that helps you just better approach and, and have a more genuine goal that is your own rather than chasing what other people want. On the topic of ultimately like living out a dream that you're proud of. 
Um, so Kevin Kelly has the saying that like the ultimate goal in life is when you're on your deathbed to look back and say, you know, I have become uh, fully um, everything that, that I, I hope to become, right? And I have contributed something original to the world. Um, in terms of getting people to live out a life that they're actually proud of, um, on, on this topic of like death and remembering death, so I have published personal essays about how valuable it has been for me to attend funerals um, when those things come up, even if I don't like directly know the person that was involved. Um, because every time I end up leaving a, a funeral, just like the impact that it has on you of like the shortness of death, how powerful that is. Um, there's this concept of memento mori that I know you've written about. Um, would just love to get your take and perspective on, on thinking about death. Yeah, so actually I was on Instagram last night <clears throat> And this really prominent person in uh, the body mod, body modification community, uh, she had apparently died. And so people were like tagging her account and things. Um, Cause I, I, it's a whole separate thing. I don't talk a whole lot about, but like, I love body mods um, and know a lot of people pretty deep in the community and have my own body mods. But um, hmm people are tagging her account and like, she's got, you know, she's got multiple accounts, whatever. But one of her accounts is like 300,000 followers. And it's just like, she's fucking dead. Like this 300 K doesn't mean shit. Right. She, she's yep. gone. Right. And you know, all these people are like, Oh, I miss you. I love you. You're so good. You inspired me to you're, you know, whatever. Right. And it's just like, it's so easy to get caught up in vanity shit, but it's like, this 300 K like her Instagram account is a, a digital tombstone at this point. Like that's, that's all it's ever going to be now. Right. And it's just like, you spend so long trying to build shit, trying to do shit just to, to leave another tombstone behind. Right. And so it's, it's good. We're talking about it today. Cause I'm like, fuck man, like she's gone. Right. Yeah. Like, I followed her for, for 10 years or whatever. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of memento mori of using more, your mortality as a motivator to live fully. Like my whole right tattoo sleeve is, is dedicated to memento mori. Um, I've got other reminders around the house and shit. And for me, it isn't meant to be like morbid or depressing so much as what is most worth my time. Right. Because eventually, you know, in a couple of generations, nobody's going to remember you, right? Like nobody, like you don't remember like what your great, great grandparents did. You might not even know their names, right? So within two or three generations, nobody's going to remember you, right? And you can either think, you can either have this idea and be like, fuck, nothing matters. Or you can be like, well, fuck, nothing matters. So I can do whatever the fuck I want, right? What can I do that most enlivens me? most mm. enriches me? What is the life that would give me the most energy because I am intrinsically motivated to do this work? That I, the work itself is fulfilling regardless of whether or not I achieve the outcome. Hopefully I, I achieve the outcome, but the day-to-day -day reality of pursuing it in and of itself is fulfilling. That is my thing. Which again, the whole core value thing of like, is this worth my time to pursue, right? Because sometimes I'm going to ask like, hey, does this get me one step closer to or further away from a lifelong of the core value of freedom? And then the things that, yes, this would get me closer. Okay, is this worth doing? 
is this intrinsically rewarding enough that I would love the process regardless of the outcome? Because mm-hmm. there are some things that would get me closer, but I would be miserable in the moment. And, and, and the outcome really wouldn't outweigh how miserable the process is, right? Because, you know, obviously, like, you have to just, like, eat shit and grind sometimes. Like, you have to do shit if you're going to build something big, right? Right. But the grinding has to be worthwhile. You have to get some sense of this is worth it in the moment. Um, there's this concept uh, called eudaimonia. And people may have heard of like, like hedonia, like hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill, right? Like doing things like pleasure seeking, right? Hedonism yep. is, is pleasure seeking. So hedonia just means that like something that is pleasurable, right? Uh, for depression, one of the symptoms of depression is anhedonia, which just means you don't gain pleasure from things you used to enjoy. Okay. It's one of the symptoms. <clears throat> hedonia basically means this feels good in the moment. It's just purely, just superficially pleasurable. Eudaimonia is something where it may not feel good in the moment, but it is worth it in the long run. And one of the examples I give is of this guy named Justin Wren. Um, His nickname is like the big pygmy. He's an MMA fighter. And he is very passionate about helping the pygmy population of the Congo gain access to clean drinking water. So he's got like a nonprofit. They go and dig wells and all sorts of stuff. And they do a bunch of other things. Um, he's gotten malaria three times at least going down there and, and helping dig these wells. Hmm. And malaria is apparently super painful. Even if you get the, the vaccines, apparently you still get it. So if you were to ask Justin <clears throat> on a day he has malaria, hey, Justin, do you feel good right now? Are you hedonic? He'd be like, fuck no. Like, I got malaria. Like, this is awful. Yeah. Okay. But is this worth it in the long run? Then he would say, yes. Like collectively, I enjoy what I'm doing. It is worth it in the long run. So even though today sucks, it is worth it because of the tomorrow that I'm building. Okay. That to me is a, is a good encapsulation of momentum or of like doing the things that are intrinsically rewarding. The process that you love, even if it isn't always immediately pleasurable, you still love it overall. That, that is sort of my guiding principle because everything else you're going to be forgotten in a couple of generations, period. So what is the legacy you want to build? What is the life you want to pursue while you have the opportunity and then trying to identify and eliminate everything that gets in your way from doing that? Very well said. And the, dichotomy between hedonia and eudaimonia i appreciate a lot because i think a lot of people they they frame the question in terms of am i pursuing my future happiness right they 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 kind of frame it in this term of happiness and i think it's very misleading to to frame it in that way because if you look at the lives of people that have lived fulfilling lives lives where they would look back on their life and say i flourished in, during my lifetime it's not really regular experiences of happiness i mean i think of like david goggins is probably the best example i wouldn't really describe david goggins as like a, a happy man per se but he is living a life that he is flourishing and that is meaningful to him. Um, and so I think that that whole framing of hedonia versus eudaimonia um, really encapsulates it. And the area where I always get frustrated about is a lot of people will say happiness is equal to 
expectations minus reality is like the, the whole framing that they use. And I'm not always sure what to do with that because it's like, well, if I want to be happy, then does that mean I just need to lower my expectations so that I'm, I'm not expecting anything of myself? And that feels like really the wrong type of framing. And it feels much more one of pursuing eudaimonia and, and enjoying the suffering that comes along with the whole experience that is human life. You know? No, I, I, I agree. Happiness is a lot like motivation to me in that it is a fleeting emotion, right? Trying to optimize for, for motivation or trying to rely on motivation to get shit done, you're, you're going to fail hundred percent, right? Cause motivation yep. is so fleeting and even when it, and, and so chaotic, right? Like you, you can't schedule motivation. You can't bottle it. You can't whatever, right? People try to with like fucking Adderall or some shit. It doesn't work. It just gives you dry mouth, right? Like it, it, there's, you don't, you can't bottle motivation. Happiness is the same thing. If you optimize for happiness, then you are optimizing for short-term things, right? It's sort of like the, the marshmallow test, right? And again, like marshmallow, t- I'm, none of this shit is like, this is specifically like 100% like proven science, right? Right. But you see the idea, right? Marshmallow test. Like, I want the marshmallow now because right now it would make me happy. And all I have is the moment, right? Okay, but can you like delay that for a little bit to then maybe have something even better. That's hard for some people to do. Right. Um, and, and yeah, f- philosophy throughout time has tried to, to identify how to, to not even be happy so much as like, how do you just feel better? Right. Buddhism. One of the big things is like desire is the root of all suffering. So if you can just practice non-attachment, if you can basically not desire things, then you, you, you remove suffering because suffering happens when you want something that you do not get, right? Well, if Mm. I'm looking forward to getting something and then at the last minute I am denied that thing, now I'm miserable. But if I never wanted that thing in the first place, then not getting it doesn't cause me any sort of misery or suffering, right? And that's fair. You definitely need to like, you know, curb your expectations and things. But, But for me, a much more enriched life is, isn't that, can I look back and be happy so much as can I look back and be content? Can I be satisfied of like, this was a good life. Like it has some really good moments. It has some, some eat shit and grind moments, whatever. And maybe I, I'm not like manically happy, like all the time, but I am satisfied with who I am, with what I've built, with what I'm leaving behind. That to me if you look at people who actually enjoy their lives, that is much more what they have optimized for rather than chasing happiness, which is just another word for hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill, because whatever makes you happy today isn't going to make you happy tomorrow because now this level of happiness has become your new baseline. So now mm-hmm. you need more and more and more, right? And then now you're never satisfied because you're always chasing more instead of trying to define enough. That's the big thing that trips up a lot of people. They chase more rather than define enough. It's rare for me to have the opportunity to speak about a lot of these psychological topics, um, topics that matter a lot, especially when thinking about your future, um, let alone doing it with somebody who does this as a profession. Um, so I am greatly appreciative of the fact that um, we were able to have this conversation. In terms of the newsletter, your writing, um, other places for people to learn more about your work, um, please, please share. 
Yeah, uh, CoreyWilkesPsyD.com. I'm CoreyWilkesPsyD everywhere. So my doctorate is a PsyD, a, a doctor of clinical psychology. So you can just, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes or something, but just CoreyWilkesPsyD, I'm there everywhere. Um, CoreyWilkesPsyD.com, you'll see all my articles. You'll be able to subscribe to the newsletter. I typically do deep dives into psychology, online business, and content creation, some version of that. So if these are the topics you like and sort of exploring the intersection of these types of things for entrepreneurs and content creators, uh, definitely check it out. Wonderful. Corey, thanks so much for being a part of the Idea Exchange and look forward to, to future conversations. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.